I was thinking as I was taking my medicine at dinner time last night that uh, probably with all these jokes about how long-winded Wagner is, we, we really ought not to accuse a chronic asthmatic of being long-winded. You know, he may be a lot of things, but uh, long-winded probably isn't it. So we'll just all agree to shift over and say he preaches long sermons. How's that? Wind or no wind. Um, which reminds me of what I wanted to say about Mr. Car- McHarg's announcement last night. By the way, I'm glad to see you came in. You were late this morning. I thought you were still up there bouncing off the inversion layer. So I'm, uh, I'm pleased to see that you're all right. I, I see. Okay. Okay, good. You know, uh, Mr. McCarg's, uh, uh exhortation took the form of Nathan the prophet when he came to David, you know, and that's always fun when you tell a story or give a little lesson because you're not exactly sure what you're supposed to repent of. I myself repented twice before he finally got to the punchline <laughs> and realized that uh, he wasn't talking about me after all. First, when he was talking about the hot air rising, of course, I thought he was going to criticize the sermons. And then we talked about the sound bouncing off the inversion layer. I thought he was going to talk about the loud noises from the designated area up in the camping uh, zone. But then when he said it's worse at 5.30 in the morning, I knew it couldn't possibly apply to me because I don't say anything at 5.30 in the morning. So I was innocent of the final accusation, but I did repent along the way. So we thank you, Nathan, for your helpful exhortation. This morning we're on uh, page 9 in the outline. Lesson three, talking about confrontation, forgiveness, and faith. And the passage that we want to look at especially is the 17th of Luke's Gospel. So if you want to find your spot in the outline and uh, your spot in the Bible, uh, where's Roy? Roy, did we get those extra copies? Two in the podium. Did anybody? Oh, yeah? What's plan B? There were, there were. Did somebody come and pick up some extra copies of the outline? Okay, that's fine. Appreciate that confession. We're glad. Anyway, we did have a few extra copies run off. If anybody is still without one, uh, there were some volunteers yesterday who were willing to share. So maybe you can uh, spread out the outlines a little bit so everybody will be able to find out where we are and where we're going. The passage that uh, we're looking at is Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. Let me read them for you as we begin. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents... Forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted by the, uh, in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, give your, uh, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? 
So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. God add his blessing to our reading and understanding, appropriation of his word. Church discipline, as I mentioned yesterday, has kind of a bad reputation among a whole bunch of evangelicals and even a worse reputation among many liberals and modernists in our world today. There has been some sign of a little change in that, I think perhaps more out of desperation than anything else. People have become so upset over the state of the church, they think something ought to be done about it, and lo and behold, they find that God thought so a long time ago, they've begun to read again with fresh appreciation the passages in Scripture which talk about church discipline, and some of the books on the book table reflect publishing that is coming out of a renewed study, a renewed appreciation, or an attempt to use church discipline in the churches. But I'm afraid that although the perception has changed somewhat, there's still basically a negative view that prevails of church discipline. Now, what that means then, at best, is that uh, churches will sort of neglect discipline in a benevolent, uh, uh, no-fault kind of way. They just don't read the passages. They don't do things when there's troubles in the church. They do a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of praying and maybe make a few efforts Uh, But by and large, church discipline just isn't practiced. But a far worse reaction, I believe anyway, is that people begin to, in this negative view of church discipline, place obedience and discipline over against love and caring, so that you can either exercise discipline or you can show love. You can either demand obedience from God's people or you can be compassionate and caring, as if these two things are at odds with one another. And to the extent you do one, you must neglect the other. I don't know about uh, the other elders and ministers here, but I have heard on a number of occasions, which is several more occasions than I ever wanted to hear it, even in presbyteries of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, people saying, we don't want to handle this case in a disciplinary fashion, we want to handle it pastorally. You ever heard that? Discipline on one side, pastoral care, compassion, and concern on the other. That's quite a remarkable thing to hear from the lips of Orthodox Presbyterian elders. Discipline on one side, pastoral care on the other, and yet many times that's the case. Now, to give them at least the best possible construction on what they're saying, maybe they're saying, we don't want to file charges of formal church discipline here, We want to talk to people and minister to them. But the impression that's given, and maybe it's kind of a Freudian slip, except we don't believe in Freudian slips, is that way deep down in our hearts there's still a kind of a tension between discipline and love, care, pastoral concern. And so it strikes us as quite remarkable, I would think, that uh, Jesus always puts discipline under the heading of pastoral care and concern. This is the way pastoral care and concern manifests itself. And that's one of the reasons that I chose the title for the series that I did. Thy rod and thy staff, the instruments of God's pastoral care and concern for his flock, are a comfort to his people, not only when he protects them, but when he disciplines them, which is to say when he protects them from themselves and from one another. I think in the passage before us, we need to appreciate that Jesus is saying that Real biblical discipline, and I mentioned this also in the introduction yesterday, takes more faith, more hope, more love than does its neglect. We are showing our measure of faith as local churches and as presbyteries 
when we carry out this kind of loving, caring discipline, whether it's one-on-one or two or three-on-one, or whether it finally comes to the attention of the church through its elders. And, Jesus is saying, that this matter of restorative discipline is a key element in what God expects from every single one of his servants. Every one of his children are expected to carry out this kind of discipline. Far from being a sign of a lack of love or a lack of faith or a lack of hope, Jesus says that to neglect discipline is a serious act of unbelief and even hatred for our brethren rather than love. The Christian who loves, says Jesus, will discipline himself and discipline one another. And the church that has a measure of faith, and to the degree that it has a measure of faith, it will practice in a loving and caring way the pastoral discipline within the body of Christ. This passage in Luke 17, as one begins to look at it, presents sort of a problem on the surface in the question of whether or not it's really a unified passage. And those who like to take the cut-and-paste approach to the interpretation of the New Testament say this is a classic example of cutting and pasting. Luke, if he wrote the Gospel, which he probably didn't, took three different sayings of Jesus that appeared in different contexts for different reasons, and he stuck them all together, and you can still see the seams because the passage doesn't really flow. It doesn't hang together. And I've heard pastors... Uh, even conservative pastors, wrestle with the question of whether we really have three different points made in this sermon that really take three different sermons or kind of strung together like beads on a strand of pearls or whether there is a unified message here. Well, I believe that there is one message in this passage and I hope that will become evident as we work through it together today and see what Jesus is saying about the urgency and the faith that is required in this matter of biblical restorative discipline. So he starts out by saying that a loving confrontation of our brother and forgiveness of him when he repents are the means by which you can rescue the brother that you love. Actually, Jesus puts it in a negative form. He says things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better to hit for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves, says Jesus. Jesus says that occasions for sin, or uh, as the King James puts it, stumbling blocks or occasions for stumbling, the Greek word is scandala, are inevitable. They're always going to be there. It's just part of what it means to live in this world And even as Christians, as part of the redeemed community, we are still going to face those occasions for stumbling, those occasions for sin. The word really has reference to a trap or a snare that will lead to destruction. So when we think about tripping over something and maybe stubbing our toe and we have a minor injury, that's really not the picture of this kind of a stumbling block. This is something where you get caught in one of those big, bear traps with nasty teeth that clamp onto you so tight that there's no escape, and ultimately, the hunter is going to come and skin you and take you home for dinner. You've had it if you fall over one of these kind of stumbling blocks, if you get trapped and snared by this kind of destructive thing. So those occasions for that kind of destruction are there. 
Conflict within the church is inevitable. The person who wrote that book that I referred to last night, uh, The Saints Come Storming In, makes that point in the introduction, that conflict is inevitable. And he, uh, uh, he is unhappy with the fact that the church presently, the conservative church, has gotten to the place where it just really can't tolerate conflict at all. That conflict, the existence of conflict, is a nasty bad thing no matter what. And he makes the point that conflict is inevitable for the people of God, but the question is, is that conflict going to lead to holiness and sanctification, or is it going to lead to destruction and disintegration? Conflict which leads to sanctification, conflict which leads to holiness, is exactly the kind of conflict that Jesus came to bring into this world when he said, I didn't come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. It does astonish me why we should expect that the Christian life should be peaceful in that superficial sense when Jesus said, I came to set people against one another. Now certainly the big division is between believer and non-believer, but we have enough inhering original sin in us that we can become enemies of one another from time to time, and conflict arises. Recently in this very presbytery, the fact that there is conflict in the presbytery has been used as evidence for the fact that this presbytery has simply been abandoned by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no hope for it because there's conflict. And the question is never raised, what does the conflict lead to? How is the conflict dealt with and what is the outcome? It's simply the fact that there is conflict. And maybe you in your own churches or in your own families or in your own life, have been accused the same way. You're beyond the hope of salvation because you are involved in conflict. We say, Jesus says, it's always going to be there. There are going to be things to trip over. So what he does is tell us how we can turn conflict into the blessedness of sanctification and greater holiness and greater unity in the body of Christ rather than letting it destroy us and divide us and lead us to disintegration. Jesus says those occasions for destruction are always there, but woe to the one who is the occasion for them. That is, the one who creates the problem in conflict that guarantees, or at least tries to guarantee, the downfall of a brother. And it's a strong, strong warning. Jesus doesn't say woe very often. The one chapter where he says woe more than any other is the one where he is raking the Pharisees over the coals backwards and forwards with woe after woe after woe after woe. The only other passage I know of in Scripture that has that many woes is in it is early in Isaiah. I think it's chapter 5, 6, somewhere in there. You know, woe to those, and it's an indictment of Israel for their sin. When Jesus says woe, it's time to woe, stop, and listen to what he has to say. And if we, in our conflict, become the occasion for stumbling, then we're in serious problem, as he goes on to say, better for you to die a horrible, violent death than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. So watch out, he says. Have you guys picked out yet how you would like to die? Doesn't everybody do that? I mean, somewhere along the line you decide, this is the way I want to go out. You know, peacefully in my sleep at 943 years old, right? Or in a flaming Corvette car crash in the fast lane of the freeway when I'm 25. Or something in between. Well, I haven't picked out how I want to die for sure yet. I thought the Lord had it picked out for me a couple of times, but uh, I got one more breath down, so I was all right. But... 
I do know how I would prefer not to drive. And uh, being around sailors recently in Chula Vista has just, you know, reinforced uh, my fear of death by drowning. I don't want to be in some ship when it goes down for the last time, and like in the movies, and sadly like in real life, when the watertight doors aren't all closed and the water comes up and up and up and up and you hold your breath for as long as you can, but then you've got to suck water and you're done for. That, to me, is a terrifying way to die. And Jesus says, if you become an occasion for the stumbling of his little ones, if you lead them into destruction, better that they wrap a rope around your neck and tie it to a big millstone and throw it off the end of the pier into the ocean. And you die by drowning. Jesus was so sensitive, wasn't he? He knows, you know, he knows how to really calm us down and relax. So we'll never be afraid of anything. Well, I guess we know then how concerned Jesus is for the well-being of his little ones. He says, you do that to my little ones, and this is what I will do to you. And it sort of underlines, doesn't it, his care for his little ones and the stern warning that he gives against those who would become the occasions for their stumbling and their destruction. Well, what is it that Jesus is really saying in this passage specifically when he talks about the causing to stumble the occasion for offense that we ought to try to avoid? Because, I mean, if you're like me, by now I want to find out what it is so I can not do it, right? I don't want to be an occasion for stumbling to one of his little ones, so what can I do to avoid it? Well, Jesus gives us the clue there in the end of uh, verse 3 and verse 4. If your brother sins, Jesus says, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, then forgive him. So for Jesus, he calls us to rebuke sin in a brother when we see it. And when he repents because of that confrontation, we are to freely forgive him as a habit seven times a day or 70 times seven times a day. We ought to customarily rebuke sin and customarily forgive those who are repentant and be reconciled to them. And if we don't do that, then we will become stumbling blocks to one another that will lead to destruction of his little ones and will come under that fearful judgment that he brings against those who act that way. Now, why should Jesus say that? If your brother sins... Confront him, rebuke him, correct him, and if he repents, forgive him freely again and again and again and be restored to him in fellowship. Well, I think we can get at it this way if we ask ourselves a couple of questions. What happens to the brother, the fellow Christian, that is trapped in a sin if you don't rebuke him and correct him? What happens to him if he gets trapped in sin and you don't help him, you don't go and speak to him, confront him with his sin, rebuke him, and correct him. Well, we know that the Bible teaches that sin has a hardening effect upon the heart, doesn't it? And the longer he continues in sin without correction, without rebuke, without restoration, the harder his heart will get. Isn't that your experience? I mean, when you indulge in sin and then you say, well, yeah, I know it's not too good, but uh, it's not all that bad either. I think I'll do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Pretty soon, it doesn't even occur to you to think about repenting anymore. 
because you've become accustomed to that sin. Your heart is hardened. There is a spiritual insensitivity, a callousness that masks the heart, a complacency. In wrestling with besetting sins in my life and in counseling people who have had those kinds of besetting sins, maybe it's habits, you know, they say, well, there was a time when I was so deeply convicted by this every time I did it, but that time passed a long time ago, and now what bothers me more than the habit that is sinful is the fact that it doesn't bother me anymore. One commentator commenting on Jesus, uh, on uh, David's comment in one of the Psalms, uh, purge me from hidden faults, you know that phrase? says what David has in mind there is those faults that have become invisible to us and our conscience because they have become so customary. There are things that we don't even think of as sinful problems anymore. Maybe we've told ourselves that's just my personality. So when I choose somebody out, that's just the way I am. That's my character type. Maybe that's my humor, you know. I'm, I'm that kind of a personality. And so it doesn't even bother you anymore. Well, yeah, it does bother you when your wife weeps big tears because you've chewed her out, or your son storms off into the other room because you've erupted in an unrighteous anger. But you get over that because they stop crying and they come back to eat, and so, you know, you're, it's no big deal. That's just the way you are. A hidden fault because of hardness and complacency. That's what happens to your brother. But more than that, you have failed if you do not rebuke him and correct him and restore him in your responsibility to be a faithful watchman over the flock of God. God said to Ezekiel, as a leader in the church, you are responsible to keep watch over the whole nation. And if you see a righteous man fall into sin, and you don't warn him, and he doesn't turn from his sin, then God's judgment will be upon him, but also on the watchman that saw it happen and said nothing. And to a lesser degree, but to a very important degree, we all have that responsibility to watch out for one another. And when we see sin in one another, and we fail to warn and to turn our brother, then we fail to be watchmen. And as a matter of fact, God says we are implicated in the brother's overthrow. I will require his blood at your hands. We are accessories after the fact to his downfall. And so you become a stumbling block, an occasion for the destruction of your brother because you could have done something about it. We've all heard the stories of crime in the big city where some woman could be beaten and raped on the sidewalk of New York City while 35 people watched it happen and nobody intervened. And we can be horrified at that kind of insensitivity and yet day after day after day in our families, in our churches, we can see one another sin and we can do nothing about it. Because the only thing we can do is to rebuke them and to correct them. And we've been told and we believe that that's an unloving, a harsh, and an insensitive thing to do. Well, Jesus wants to turn your brain and your heart on its head today and say, if you let that brother go on in his sin to his destruction, then don't say you love him. Don't say you care about him. Tell the truth. You care more about yourself, your own embarrassment, your own awkwardness at warning him than you do about whether he lives or dies. And if he goes on into his sin and unto his destruction, God will require it of us. Jesus says don't do that. Don't neglect confronting and rebuking and correcting, because if you do, 
you become an occasion for your brother's downfall and you do not show love to him. Now the other question is what happens to a brother who is convicted of his sin when we rebuke him and correct him and he does repent and turn from his wicked ways but then we fail to forgive him and to be reconciled to him and to restore our relationship to him. Then what happens? Well, you see, that's equally dangerous, equally bad as Jesus outlines it. Because, as Paul uses the language in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that brother who has repented and cannot be restored, cannot be forgiven, cannot be brought back into the fellowship, will be overwhelmed by sorrow. Here he will hear what God has to say that he is straying from the lips of a brother who cares, or at least he thinks cares, and then he repents and he turns only to find that brother's face or that sister's heart closed against him because there's no forgiveness, there's no restoration, there's no healing. The word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians is an intensive word that means to be swallowed up completely by sorrow, by grief by loss. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians 15 when it says death is swallowed up in victory. How much death is left over at the resurrection? Not a bit. It is completely swallowed up in life. And so the brother who repents and is not forgiven and restored is swallowed up completely by his grief and by his sorrow. Such a brother is like one who had a rope tied around his neck tied to a big, huge millstone and dropped into the ocean of grief and sorrow. Because if you rebuke him and he repents and you don't forgive him, there's no way back. And it's a tragic thing that so often we either fail to rebuke because of a lack of love or maybe we'll rebuke out of a selfishness, which then when it brings repentance, then we say, well, good, I got my two cents in, I made my point, I was right, but I'm not going to forgive. Or, I'll say I forgive, but we can't be friends anymore. We can't be close. Have you ever heard that or said that? When sin has divided you from somebody else, you say, well, we used to be like this, but now sin has divided us like this, and I forgive you and you can come back to here. But we cannot be like this anymore. And that is a grief to people, an overwhelming sorrow. And it shouldn't happen in the church, and it shouldn't happen in individual relationships. And Jesus says that if you or I are the ones who occasion the stumbling in that way by failing to rebuke or by failing to forgive, then we are the ones who are the occasion for this overwhelming destruction of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it would be better for us to die than for us to face the wrath of the Lamb when he asks us on Judgment Day, why did you destroy my little ones? Those of you who are parents know that there isn't very much that can get you as angry, as fast, as an unwarranted attack against your children, verbally or physically. Meek and mild moms that never raise their voice above a whisper when their children are physically threatened by someone, can do heroic and ferocious things to protect them. And our Lord Jesus is just as caring about his little ones. And if we are the enemies of his little ones, then we better watch out. And that's what Jesus says. Watch yourself.
And so this matter of forgiving, this matter of repenting and receiving people who repent is very, very serious. There really is nothing more hideous than a Christian who will not forgive or will not be reconciled. As the Puritan Thomas Brooks said, for wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. And how often we in the body of Christ, by our neglect of rebuke or our neglect of forgiveness and restoration, are guilty of tearing each other to pieces. And we do it because we've been so deceived by Satan that we think that's what love requires, to neglect, to heal and restore. Christian love that neglects proper biblical restorative discipline is really not love at all, but rather a dangerous kind of hatred. The words of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 18 come to mind in this connection. Here it's talking about the discipline of a son, But if it applies to the discipline of a son, how much more does it apply to the discipline of a brother and sister within the body of Christ, where God in his infinite wisdom says, Discipline your son, for in that there is is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Discipline your brothers and sisters, says the Lord, for in that there is hope, not an absence of hope. There is love, not an absence of love. There is faith, not an absence of faith. Otherwise, you become a willing party in his death. You consent in his destruction. And that's a sad, sad thing because both parties by that are destroyed. Not only your brother who stumbles, but in neglecting him, you have stumbled yourself into that destruction of judgment. Jesus is calling for some pretty tough love here. It's hard to rebuke. And when your brother repents, often it is even harder to forgive. And when you forgive, it's often even harder yet to restore the fullness of that relationship that existed before the sin. And you have to love desperately, love urgently, love completely with the love of Christ. It's amazing to me that often people in the church will call for unconditional love. That means you love one another no matter what they do. And so don't tell them what they're doing is wrong. Just love them. But this is unconditional love. This is when the condition is to rebuke your brother, you love him anyway and you rebuke him. And when the condition is to forgive your brother, you forgive him anyway and you go and talk to him. And when you need to be restored to him, if that's the condition of love, you love him even despite that condition until he is restored to the fullness of that relationship. So is it any wonder that when the apostles hear what Jesus has to say here, they say, Lord, increase our faith. We don't have what it takes to love that way. An occasional rebuke when we're really pushed out of shape, yeah, that we can master. Forgiveness when the sin isn't too bad, that's okay. Restoring a relationship when there's some other reason to restore the relationship, we can do that. But just to do it under every circumstance with every brother and sister in Christ, that is more than we can manage. Give us more faith. And so the disciples respond to Jesus' exhortation just that way. They cry out for more faith. When we as believers begin to see the increasing demands of discipleship upon us, and that happens all the time as we grow in the faith, we begin to see what taking up our cross and following Jesus means in more and more detail. But when we become more aware of what we need to do 
we become more and more aware of what we need from Christ in order to do it. It drives us back to Christ. It drives us to the resources of the Spirit of God to increase faith, hope, and love so that we can do what God demands. When we find out that the only way to be happy in Jesus is to trust and obey, we have to ask God for grace to trust Him more and obey Him more faithfully. And you know, it's interesting, that first part of this passage can scare us to death. It certainly terrifies me. But no matter how fearful we are, no matter how frightened we are of Jesus' possible judgment and the warning that He gives, we won't do what He says we ought to do unless we seek more faith, better faith, more grace from Christ in order to do it. People can't be terrified into the kingdom of heaven. They can't be terrified into sanctification. They have to know the grace of Christ and respond with gratitude and loyalty and love to Christ who gave Himself for them. And so the disciples were on the right track. They recognized that faith was the issue and they asked for the question. But Jesus responds to them in terms of the quality of their faith, not the quantity of their faith. You see, he's not going to allow faith to be psychologized here where we say what we need is a greater capacity to have confidence. You know, that's what the world thinks faith is. It's just sort of the capacity to believe anything. Remember how uh, Maria sang about it in The Sound of Music? I have confidence in confidence alone. That's just another way of saying I have faith in faith alone. And so the more faith in faith you have, the bigger the faith. And that's supposed to be good. But Jesus says you don't need a lot of faith. All you need is a little bit of faith like a mustard seed. But it has to be the right quality of faith. So he's not going to let you and I cop out by saying, Lord, I just don't have enough faith to rebuke my brother when he sins. I don't have enough faith to forgive him when he repents. I don't have enough faith to restore our relationship through reconciliation. And since I don't have enough faith, I guess you'll have to leave this job to the guys who do have enough faith. Jesus says, no, no. A little bit of faith is enough. But it has to be faith in me, says Jesus. You see, the quality of faith is the object of faith. It is resting and trusting in the sufficiency of Christ, not only for our eternal salvation, but for the grace to do what he commands us to do when it is impossible. Swimmers know that if they're going to swim a long way, they have to be constantly pushing endurance. You know, And if they're going to swim underwater, they have to just say, I have to be willing to swim when I can't breathe anymore. And so I push off, and I swim, and I swim, and I swim, and as soon as I think my lungs are about to burst, I swim five strokes farther. And that's the way our faith grows. Not because it gets bigger psychologically, because, but because it becomes more desperate for Christ's provision of grace. And until we start doing what is impossible, then we aren't going to know the growing faith. And so, in a lot of ways, this matter of restorative discipline is a good place to let your faith grow. Because as soon as you say, I can't do it, Lord, the Lord says, sure you can't, but do it anyway. How can I do it, Lord? Trust me, says Jesus. Rely upon me. If you have a little faith in me, we can pull up mulberry trees and plant them in the ocean. You know, I, I, can, I, I can understand how you can throw a mountain into the ocean even with a little bit of faith. I mean, that makes sense. But how do you plant a tree in the water? I mean, it, conceptually, it's impossible. It doesn't matter, Jesus says. Little faith in me, relying on my grace, my sufficiency, my supply, will get the job done. 
And so there's no excuses if we say we don't have enough faith to rebuke and forgive and restore. We do have enough faith if our faith is in Jesus Christ, but it's only in the desperate sense of our inability that we can do that. I've counseled husbands and wives who have had their lives divided by all kinds of serious, serious problems. And uh, almost the first thing they say is, uh, I can forgive them, but we can never put this relationship back together. And so we talk about God doing the impossible, and we work through problems, and we watch God do the impossible. And then often the testimony afterwards is to say, you know, Pastor, I would have never believed it. It, was, it, it couldn't have happened. But my husband and I or my wife and I are closer than we have ever, ever been before. God did what was impossible. So faith does work when it's resting in Christ. God keeps his promises. Well, you might think, if you have that kind of faith, little beansy but right in Christ, that you must be some sort of a great super spiritual saint. You are now moving into the realm of doing what God requires above and beyond the call of duty. And that spiritual pride begins to swell. So Jesus pumps us with the needle real quick to bring us back down to the earth because he goes on to tell this little story. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would you say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Far from going above and beyond the call of duty, when we fulfill these demands to rebuke and forgive and restore, we're simply doing what is part of the normal Christian life, what Jesus expects from all of his people. You see, Jesus isn't issuing a call here to the super spiritual saint that has had the second blessing or the third blessing or the eighth blessing or however many blessings it takes to move into that category of sainthood. He's talking to plain, old, ordinary, garden-variety believers like you and I. This is a requirement for all of God's servants because it comes from the Lord. And when the Lord gives us a command, it simply is not optional for us to decide who's going to do it and when are they going to do it. When the Lord says, serve my food, the servant serves his food. doesn't say, well, I was working out there in the field all day and all you've been doing is sitting home here, Lord. I'm hot and sweaty. I'm tired and dirty. Can't I eat first and then I'll be much more enthusiastic and happy about feeding you your meal. No, the Lord can say, no, you get cleaned up because I don't want to smell you and then you serve me and after I'm finished, I'm satisfied. Then you can eat. And the Lord doesn't have to thank his servant for being so kind and self-sacrificing. The servant has done just what he's expected to do. Now, we all claim to be servants of Jesus Christ, but how often do we expect to be treated like we are doing God a big favor by obeying his commands? How often does this kind of a command where the Lord just asserts his bald lordship grate on us and make us think, well, come on, cut us a little slack, Lord. You see, the Lord is so gracious to us all the time that we begin to presume on that grace and we think somehow he owes it to us. 
So when he makes a real tough demand, we say, well, wait a minute, I don't have to do that. Let me eat first, let me rest first, let me get my feet up, then I'll do what you say, Lord. The Lord doesn't have to do that. We are his servants. We are to follow him. We're not making points with God when we rebuke one another and forgive one another and restore one another. Much less are we contributing in any way to our salvation by some sort of a work of supererogation. Now, many of the commentators have pointed out that this really does stress the humility that we ought to have when we obey God, and that's certainly true. But I think Jesus in this context is taking a little bit farther for the sake of emphasis. And he's saying that he expects all of his servants to live by this rule. It is not something that's just for the elders. The elders ought to rebuke people when they fall into serious sin. They ought to forgive them in Jesus' name. They ought to work to restore them. But all of the rest of us don't have to worry about it. Or it's only for those people in the church who have a special gift of love, a special gift of caring, or maybe particularly belligerent and hard-nosed and like to rebuke people or something like that. You know, where we say there's a certain class of people that are equipped with the right personality for this kind of thing. No, Jesus expects every one of his children to care about every other one of his children, and to manifest that care by rebuking sin, forgiving when one repents, and restoring relationships and fellowship in the body of Christ. It's for all of us. And when we exercise this sort of mutual restorative discipline, we're only doing what God requires of us. There are no exemptions, and there is no credit and praise, except the praise and the encouragement that a servant receives when his master is pleased, when his Lord is happy. If you want to please the Lord Jesus Christ, you must do these things faithfully, carefully, not for fear's sake. Now, maybe this message does kind of put the fear of God into you, and that's okay. It's a, it's a good idea to be afraid of Jesus Christ. We should be much more, but it's sad that when those much more things make us forget you know, C.S. Lewis mentions that in one of his Narnia stories. It's a wonderful point when, when one of the children realizes that this Aslan figure that everybody's been rejoicing in is a lion. And lions are scary. And the child asks one of the animals, well, is he safe? And the animal says, of course he's not safe. But he's good. Jesus isn't safe. But he's good. And so we ought to fear offending our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to fear becoming a stumbling block to his little ones. But more than that, knowing that the one that we fear has loved us with an everlasting love and poured out his life on the cross, we ought to be grateful. And we ought to love because he first loved us. Loving him, loving one another. And that commitment to act in discipline really does give truth to our statements about loving the unity of the church. It really does make our statements about brotherly love much more than just empty rhetoric. You see, if we talk about loving one another as members of a local church or as part of a presbytery or part of a denomination or part of the church throughout all the world, if our talk of brotherly love doesn't issue in this kind of vigorous effort to restore and rebuke, even when it seems impossible, then we're really giving the lie to our profession. One of the saddest things that has ever happened in my life has happened recently in this very presbytery. 
where brothers have left. And the reason that they have left, at least ostensibly, was because there is no love in this church. And I don't mean in Bayview or in Carson, but I mean in the Church of Southern California, the Presbytery of Southern California. And in talking to some of those brothers on repeated occasions, I said, well, let's say that's true. Don't you want to rebuke them if they have sinned? Don't you want to forgive them if they repent? And don't you want to mend these fissures and make this one body again? And they said, no, we're going to go. We're going to certify the breach in the fellowship rather than mend it. We see that makes those words of brotherly love, those words of unity, empty, vain words because there is no practice with it. And we cannot be guilty of those kinds of things. Is there conflict among us? Sure. Is there going to be a time when there won't be any conflict? Yeah, in the new heavens and the new earth. But we're not there yet. So now we have to work at using that conflict to make us holy and to make us one and to make our love for one another something that is in deed and in truth. Remember what James says. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? Faith, paraphrase James in this context, if you say to your brother, I really want you to be holy, I want you to be like the Lord Jesus Christ, but when he falls into sin, you don't rebuke him, then what good is your wish for his holiness? If you say you want your brother to be restored in good fellowship to you, but when he repents, you don't forgive him and you don't let him come back, then what good are those well wishes? John says, dear children, let us not love with words and tongue, but with actions and truth. Let's pray. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. And we do pray that you might forgive us for those occasions when we have become a stumbling block, a serious snare, a trap to our brothers and sisters because we allowed them to continue in sin to their own soul's hurt and we had nothing to say because we were offended or our feelings were hurt or we were so angry or frustrated with their action that we withdrew from them and had nothing more to say. Forgive us when people have left our churches because we have been unwilling to exhort them and rebuke them and correct them when necessary. Forgive us, O oh Lord, when our stumbling has been caused by a failure to forgive, when we have rebuked, when we have corrected and a brother has said or a sister has cried, yes, I'm wrong, I'm sorry before God and I'm sorry before you. Will you take me back? And we have been satisfied to be right in an argument rather than to receive them back again. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have allowed the breaches in fellowship to be certified and fixed by abandoning one another rather than by seeking to use and make effective the restoration through correction, through forgiveness, through healing. Lord, it is impossible for us to do these things, and we know that. We don't deserve any credit when we do these things, because we know not only is it expected of us as servants, but the grace to do it comes from the Lord himself. 
But Father, we would like, as churches in the Southern California Presbytery and as individuals within those churches, we would like our love not to just be talk, our expressions of our concern for unity not just to be rhetoric, but to be love in deed, and therefore love in truth. And so increase our faith and give us grace to believe what you have promised, that your church can use conflict to good purpose when that discipline, when that conflict, when that struggle is properly faced and dealt with so as to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. May we know the joy that some among us do know, even today, who have been terribly estranged from another Christian and have found through repentance and forgiveness and restoration a closeness that was never there before and really could never have been there before until discipline did that perfect cementing work between hearts and lives. Lord, we rejoice that we have seen you do it, but we don't want just those mercy drops of grace falling around us, but rather showers of blessing, a fullness of this healing, restoration, grace that you have promised to us. And may we use it, and may we find it a blessed part of our fellowship together. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we break for our uh, little time, let's sing those last two verses.